I want to start with a quote from you in a past interview. For me, a few hour hoop session is a sacred spiritual practice. I love the collective aspect. I love that basketball can transcend difference and be common ground for people to connect. What serves me well in basketball also serves my well-being. When I read that, I thought oh, that was just a perfect way to sum up a lot of people's feelings about basketball. And I think I know me personally, I have trouble kind of articulating that feeling. And I think you did it beautifully. So I wanted to ask you to elaborate on that quote a little bit. Wow. Yeah. Thanks, Spence. That yeah. means a lot to me, man. Yeah. I haven't heard that quote read back to me. I'm assuming that's from the local hoops yeah. article. Uh, I did. They do a great job with what they're doing for the game. And uh, it's always fun for me to talk basketball because that's what I feel like I'm going to do all day, every day, even when it's not a, a, a podcast about the game. But you know, when I was thinking about that in that moment, it just, you know, this idea of a spiritual practice, whether it's, and forgive the lawnmower in the lawn, <laughs> but um, it's, you know, it's something that all of us have our version of it, right? Some are conscious of it and more intentional and deliberate about that spiritual practice than the others. But for me, in my experience with my spiritual practice, whether it's basketball or another one like meditation or I try to be consistent with that and Qigong and these, you know, different type of things connected to our body and our breath. The more consistent we are with those acts, the more powerful they are. So just like, you know, that's a lesson I gained from general spiritual practice. That's also a lesson I gained out of basketball, right? Because my consistency with my habits in basketball are obviously what benefit me in the most difficult settings of the game. I'm only 5'8", 155, and I'm a non-athlete. However, I have been playing this game with a deliberate purpose and practice with that deliberate practice since the beginning, really, you know, 20 plus years, you know, almost 30 years now. So that is something I could tap into even when I'm outmatched in other areas. So I don't know. I think, you know, the value of consistency overlapping with this value of passion, that's what I get out of basketball more than anything, right? And they really transcend the game and how they've benefited me. So, you know, it, it's something we lose. We, you know, I might wake up in a day and, and not meditate as long or not even meditate on that given day. And obviously that's a step away from where I'm working to be. Um, so we all have our peaks and valleys, but, you know, just like the ability to go to the park by yourself and see the ball go through the net if you had an off-shooting game, hypothetically, is just a way to reset and find that equilibrium. So, you know, like um, I just said equilibrium. My best friend in college, I played against him in high school. He's now a, a musician. So his artist name as a musician is Equanimous, mm. right? So this equanimity, this calm, this levelness. And I think it's beautiful. It's fitting for who his artist is. And it's, you know, emblematic of what you want your point guard to be. Yeah. I, um, I played... I coached uh, my first coaching gig in college was for a guy named Rancourt, Coach Guy Rancourt. So he was the head coach at uh, a Division Three. Now he's the head coach at his alma mater, Western Connecticut State. But I was at Lycoming College with him. So he had this really talented team. We were winning a lot of games, and we hit a, like a rough patch. 
And he claims he got a call from Phil Jackson. It was like Coach Laranega <laughs> advocated for Rancourt that he needed help. So apparently Coach L's close with Phil, and Phil called Rancourt. So Rancourt's telling our team the only message the Zen master had for him was about the season going to be inevitably peaks and valleys. So having that levelness in the face of that as a group would help us persevere. So, you know, it's just like, like you're saying, like there was uh, there was some profound wisdom, I hope, in what I said about the game. <laughs> so like you're saying, like the game itself is a vehicle for that, you know, for all of us uh, that are really appreciated and embedded in our lives. And, you know, for other people, there's other things, not sports or not basketball that have that purpose for them. But I'm grateful because, you know, the more we lean into basketball, the more you can see these different attributes and dimensions to the game that you can use as a blueprint. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's fun to recollect on my own uh, words because I've never really done that ever. And obviously I got sidetracked. But, yeah, I mean, anytime that I'm stressed, anxious, or, you know, not myself fully, I can go back to the game and it's going to get me back to who I am because it's that even if it's tapping into that childhood version of myself, that innocence, or it's just always been a source of so much joy, pride, and success that it will remind me of, you know, what it's done for me and bring that gratitude back to the forefront. Wow. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, like I said, I really loved that quote and I think it embodied what a lot of people feel when they do go to that court by themselves with the ball and you don't need anybody and you're just looking for that reset. Or like you said, you have an off shooting night whatever the case may be that that ball and that hoops a constant so yeah I just yeah my boy coaches in the in the league for the hornets okay. and he's you know having a tough season like his team isn't succeeding to the level they could and he's trying to tell me his name is nick friedman so coach nick is like how can i get my athletes to not lose the perspective you know and get back to who they are because these are elite elite NBA players and, you know, they could be achieving at a higher level. And he, he said it the other day, like what's better for your confidence and for your mood than just a great pickup, a, a day of pickup yeah. where you're, where you're dominating or you're not, but you know, just the, the aspect of having pickup. And so like you, we were saying like a, a one-on-one, one-on-oh workout at the park shooting and yeah, a good run with the homies or a competitive run of, with the game in the right curated setting, there's nothing better than that feeling. You can't replace that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know you talked about coaching at Lycoming. How do you pronounce it? Lycoming? Yeah, Lycoming. Lycoming. Yeah. I want to in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Okay. I know you've had a few coaching stops, so I want to start with the beginning and start with uh, who who were the rapping rabbis or what were the rapping rabbis? Yeah, you did your research right. So yeah. rapping rabbis is my uh, – Jewish community day school team. So uh, I went to a small Jewish day school that was just getting off the ground in Massachusetts. And uh, we had a parent, Mark Pollock, who was willing to coach our team and his sons, who were some of my best friends at the time. One of them ended up playing at Grinnell, Joel. Um, but Joel and Danny, his older brother, and Mark and I were all uh, hoop junkies and insistent on making a team. So I was in first grade um 
maybe it wasn't until second grade that that team actually was real. And yeah, we'd go to school early before school started. So, you know, we're practicing six, seven in the morning wow. at a, at a church gym because we shared a, a like a, our school was inside a church. So fortunately Trinity Catholic high school uh, where we eventually moved, uh, I think maybe now I'm third, fourth grade, they had a nice gym in Newton, Massachusetts, and we were able to use their gym for practice in the mornings. And we would play very sparingly. I mean, we played once or twice a year against the local Jewish community, uh, Jewish community center. Wow. And then uh, maybe the Montessori school. Uh, so it was very small beginnings for my basketball career, but it's, it's very cool because I'm still working closely with the head coach of that team with the work I do in Haiti. His organization is uh, is my fiscal sponsor. Okay. So Mark Pollock and I still to this day, from when I was you know six years old till now, are connected through the game of basketball. But it's funny because my sister was on the Rapper Rabbis. Like my sister <laughs> lives in LA. Also, she's my older sister, so she's never been a basketball person, uh, even at that stage. But she was one of the students of the school. It's a small school, and she came to practice, and uh, we raced one day. And the first five to win the race got to start. And I'm really slow still. So I remember she was one of the five fastest and got to start for the Rapid Rabbis, which was something that for me is very funny to think back on. <laughs> and uh, actually, she played in like a co-ed league in Brooklyn when she was a student at NYU. So I played on her team in that co-ed league in like Greenpoint or Williamsburg, wherever it was. And that was the next time she played basketball since the Rapid Rabbis. So her basketball career is very, um, very humble and modest, but it's cool that she was on my team and she got a bucket, which was something I don't think I did that first season of the Rapper Rabbi. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's something that she can always hold over my head um, and quite silly for us. But, you know, that team, so that team uh, was at Jewish Community Day School. So they actually have a school team now. The, the logo for Jewish Community Day School is a flame, right? So each each student is like, you know, it's that soul that, that uh, you know, because they work with every dimension of the student, mm -hmm. not just, you know, teaching uh, actual academics, but, you know, the spiritual, emotional, all that. And it's uh, holistic and they do a great job. Their team is called the Blaze because the flame okay. is the logo. So the JCDS Blaze men's and women, uh, girls and boys team have had some success recently. And it's cool to see because I feel like, a forefather of that program with the rapping rabbis. There was actually a family from New York, uh, the Lurias. So they're a Jewish family whose father, Dove Luria, is a rabbi. And they're four brothers. So three of those four brothers are all hoop junkies. The two oldest are closer to my age. So they were on that team. And, you know, one was our probably best player, Yehuda Luria. And then Nissan Luria was my backcourt, backup backcourt mate. <laughs> Um, and it's great because I've stayed in touch with that family as an adult, as a teenager. And we had so much, you know, basketball was our tie. They moved in from New York and basketball was our thread. Uh, and they are a great family and the, the older brothers. And now the youngest brother is a killer. Like I uh, last played pickup with him in New York City and they're religious family. So he's leaving. I don't know if you're a Jewish guy or not. Mm -hmm. uh, you are. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's Shabbos or May. I think it was Shabbos. And he's like leaving with his Shabbos clothes to come to the park. So he meets us at this wow. park. He's in dress shoes, 
tzitzit, the yarmulke, the whole thing, <laughs> and he's cooking. Oh my like, god! In that fit, you know, I don't even know how he had any traction. <laughs> um, but he was so. Uh, his name is Ellie Luria, and he was giving us the business in the in his Shabbos clothes. Wow. But it's funny because we all went to the same Jewish summer camp. Okay. So we had Shabbos ball, and Shabbos ball was that Saturday run right after services. But you couldn't play in it until you were a CIT or a counselor. So it was the highest level pickup. You know, you get to witness at our Jewish summer camp. So in the summer, every summer you go watch until, you know, like I would go watch every summer until I was finally a CIT and able to play. And then it's the race to the court to get into the first game. So I'm wearing my basketball court, you know, shorts and, and uni, whatever I'm going to wear to play pickup under my dress clothes. Oh, my God. Sprinting, you know, during the final prayer or don't alarm or whatever it is. <laughs> Brings into that court and make sure we're in that first game. And uh, the best Shabbos ball player in Camp Yavna history, or at least in my era, is a guy named Avi Minder. So the way I'll tie it in is now Avi is a teacher at JCDS where the rapping rabbi started. Wow. He's one of the best Small teachers world. at that day school, and he's one of the best Jewish hoopers I've ever come across, <laughs> or hoopers in general. He's a great player out of, out of Massachusetts and uh, – it's cool that he's now at JCDS. So, you know, they have uh, some some great, you know, if it was teacher, student day and they're playing some games, I don't think those kids <laughs> want any part of that. That's awesome. It sounds like you're still, yeah, pretty connected with the Yes, yeah, my parents' guys. day school. My mother oh, okay. uh, is still involved with Jewish Community Day School, and she and my father helped get it off the ground. Initially, we only had like 11 students, and now wow. it's a you know, full-blown institution, multiple hundreds of students there, and it's cool to see. That's you know, amazing. What it's, what it's, you know, become. Yeah. So you said that was in Newton? Yeah, the school is in Watertown, Massachusetts. Yeah, it was okay. originally at a couple of different venues throughout Newton. There was Trinity Catholic Church. There was another church it started in, and we were, like, in the basement. That's what, like I said, was very small at that time. Um, and, yeah, it's in Watertown, Mass. How far is that from Boston? That's right there, suburbs oh, okay. of Boston. Newton oh, okay. and Boston border each other, and Watertown's right over there as well. Got it. So what? So you found basketball. You said you started playing first and second grade. How did you get into it? Was it through those friends or your yeah, dad? Yeah, it was through Mark's son. Okay. It was like the head coach of the rapper rabbi's kid, uh, and I became best friends in first grade, and he was a big fan of basketball. Danny's dad, Mark, was a uh, a pitcher in the minors. And I think he had some vision issues and he couldn't stick with baseball, but he was always a huge sports fan, huge basketball fan. And we'd watch, you know, they're, he's a Cleveland guy. So we watched like <laughs> the world series. I remember the Indians, you know, Marlins world series at their house. And, you know, I would take pride in the Indians because of them. So I think I was at their house, like red and, and blue face paint <laughs> for the Indians, but we were watching those MJ, the second three Pete really. Oh, wow. So like, you know, I, I remember watching, the shot, you know, Byron Russell push off. Yeah. Game six against the Jazz at the Pollock household. I remember, you know, all these times watching basketball was a lot of time with them. Yeah. My family isn't a sports family. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got that interest in basketball through staying with them. And he, his dad would literally like wake us in the middle of the night and we played two on two with the dad and the little brother against me and the older brother. <laughs> you know, they had the little court in the yard. We were shooting at that court in the yard that day. The Celtics were in the conference finals against the Nets. And it was like Tuan Pierce made that big fourth quarter comeback. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this game, right? 
So we had watch, you know, we're watching the game. Man, Celtics gonna lose. Game's over. We go out, get our own shots up. And Carla, lovely woman, Danny's mother, uh, was like, "What? You guys gotta come back in and see this, you know?" Because we thought it was over for sure. <laughs> so all types of of fond memories of you know being a little kid and just getting a, a feel for basketball through the Pollocks. And then yeah, I took my own ownership of it, and you know my parents were great and supportive of of my pursuit of that and you know i was delusional uh, uh about who i would be as a player as a little <laughs> kid because we were in that small bubble of of the jewish basketball community mm. at the time really so after you played at the community day school where that ended in eighth grade or how far did that go up yeah I, I actually left uh as a basketball decision like wow. i mean uh, i was looking at it it's like well i gotta make a uh a sh- i have to find a way to play higher levels of competition besides going to play pickup in, in different areas of, of Boston and things like that. And I'm a middle schooler, seventh grader. And um, I wanted to go play at the public high school. Like I visited the, it was called new Jewish high school or Gan Academy. And they toured me around. And I remember I could be on varsity as a freshman probably. And I played at one day in practice, you know, I probably wasn't even that good enough to be on varsity as a freshman, even a Jewish school. But in my head, I was like, Oh, go dominate the new Jew <laughs> or, you know, go to the public school in my town. So I, I went to the middle school in my, in my hometown, Weston middle school for eighth grade. Okay. And then Weston high school, right on that same block uh, for high school. And it was great. You know, we were very, very, um, non-athletic uh <laughs> basketball program even there so for me to think this is a high level it's funny you know it's a small high school only like 700 kids you know oh. i think about the competition you see around the country you have great players who can't make their high school team you know yeah. and i was fortunate enough to play at weston high and made the basketball decision i had all these goals i'm gonna make varsity by my junior year i'm gonna do this that and and i achieved that i achieved varsity as a junior and um was on the freshman team and uh sophomore on the jv team and it was funny to me because i never started on freshman or jv but i was captain of the team both years <laughs> and yeah i mean i got some tick like you know i came in off the bench and our, our head coach of the varsity team gave me all this confidence as a sophomore when i'm on jv announcing it to the whole program you know aaron's our best ball handler in the program <laughs> and that's you know me in my head like why why aren't i on varsity then but I, I had no idea what I was doing, really delusional and oblivious high school player, and I have the film to prove it, so it's fun to, <laughs> to look back on those days. And Weston's program has had some up and down uh, success. You know, they had some times where they've been good. They won a state title in the 90s. I had a guy named Casey Gibbons who scored 1,000 points in two years, played at Cornell, played at Williams, took Williams to the Final Four. His little brother was on the team with me. And, you know, he's a great guy, Patrick. And they were, you know, one family of basketball from Weston. Their brother actually adopted Hassan Sufana, played at Maryland. But, you know, it's rare. It's rare that you had that high-level Weston uh, basketball. And then it, they found that glory again recently. Our freshman coach was from our neighboring rival town. Uh, this guy named Dennis Doherty, who's now the head coach at his high school in Wayland, the town next door but he was our freshman coach at Weston. So when I took, you know, that year and was on freshman, he had just taken the job and it was really great timing because he's an excellent high school coach and to have the opportunity to play for a guy like that, 
at that time was was really impactful. And we had a nice year, successful year. That guy, Equanimous, that I referenced earlier, mm-hmm. the musician, he went to Newton South High School. So I remember they were pretty good. I think they were undefeated when we matched up with them. And I met him at layup lines of that game. <laughs> and he they had a play called Celtic, meant backdoor. And he would kept coming off these floppy actions, making threes or calling Celtic because he could really shoot off the catch. He still to this day can. We actually went to Venice Beach on Christmas Eve and played pickup out there oh, nice. this year, this past, you know, Christmas Eve. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, those dual county league was the conference we were in. It's changed. So now my high school is too small, so they don't play against some of these bigger schools we played when I was coming up. Mm-hmm. They split the dual county league a little bit, so you're not playing – 3,000 kid high school yeah. when we're that small suburb west and going against uh, a bigger athletic program. We were a little outmatched and we struggled my senior year to get wins, but it was a really cool, valuable experience to, to be. And then I'm finally captain of the varsity team. We actually had a kid who went on to play at Harvard and Boston College mm. and uh, was, was a good college player, had a pro career in Spain. Andrew Van Nest, who uh, lives in Miami now, successful VC and you know he's uh, a great guy but he bailed on me my senior year he left <laughs> which was the best thing he could have done for his career so no no shade there but he went to the like prep school Northfield Mount Hermon so there's you know a big program uh they notorious for sending guys to the Ivy League and he didn't wait to do it prep year he left senior year so it was going to be me him and the other big as the returning varsity guys he he left us, so it was just me and one other big as returning varsity guys. And we had a transfer that was going to be like saving grace. So I know you're not asking about my high school basketball journey and what could have been, but um, our transfer is a great guy named Madison Maxwell. So Mad Max was the son, is the son of a NBA legend who did the radio for the Celtics. Okay. So that's why he was living in my hometown. Because he's, you know, a local guy. He's a guy named Cornbread Maxwell. So Cornbread played for UNC Charlotte, took them to the Final Four, I think, in the late 70s. Pretty sure he won finals MVP in 1981 with the Celtics. You know, so, you know, Cedric Maxwell is this very successful NBA player who's been doing a great job covering the Celtics on the radio for a long time. And Cornbread's son, Madison, moved up from North Carolina, moved in with his dad. So we had this opportunity to kind of replace Van Nest as, <laughs> as a senior. We had a guy who could take the tip, bring the ball up. He kind of reminds me of Tyrese Rice uh, in, how, in terms of how Madison plays. His dad was all finger rolls, 6'9". I don't know if you've seen Cedric no, on film. I don't think so. So Cornbread, to me, everyone talks about who's the greatest player to not make an all-star team. You know, Rod Strickland has to be at the top of the list and I think Cornbread's the only guy that rivals him. Okay. Like in terms of body work and, you know, they're different players. But those are the two best NBA guys to not be all-stars. And uh, Cornbread used to show us his highlight. You know, his kid is, is a great guy. And <laughs> I, I was I was in the video room for the Heat, and I ran into uh, Cornbread, and it was like the last time I seen him. And it was happened to be his son's birthday. So it was a nice coincidence. Uh, so that's the last time I seen his son, too, because we FaceTime. But his kid was killing and we're in fall league and we're playing in this fall league with some teams in our division. There was a, there was a high school that won our division my senior year and we're playing them in fall league up like 25 and on a transition dunk, they took out Madison's legs. They cut undercut him. He broke his wrist and he missed the whole season until senior night. 
he played senior night, which was a, a great special night. And at least he got to do that. But I think Madison, had he had that or a prep career, I think he could have been a, a legitimate professional basketball player. And we would have had a better year like, <laughs> than, uh, than we ended up having um, without him. But, but yeah, that's uh, my days of what could have been. And at what point did you, the transition of, okay, I may not have a shot at, at playing college at some level and started thinking about coaching. Yeah, that was early. Yeah. I was already, once I transferred to public school and, and uh, was playing in a different set of competition, you know, <laughs> like with kids who were a lot better than me compared to being the best guy out there. A lot of the time I was disillusioned quickly early on, gratefully for that because it, it helped me find that focus on wanting to be a coach. I had that desire from an early age, you know, from, from middle school all throughout high school, I was in the mindset of, Oh, I want to coach. I want to be a coach. So even as a high school player, I uh, could have probably played at some division three college somewhere, you know, I had yeah. very limited recruitment and I was meeting with coaches when I was, you know, visiting colleges and they, you know, well, we got a walk on spot for you here. I think it was like Haverford or Skidmore or one of them. I, I might've been able to play on the team mm-hmm. and these smaller broads colleges to me didn't, look as the best way to further my coaching career, even though obviously you have great division three players who have become incredible coaches. And that is a track you can take. Uh, I didn't even think I had much of a shot to be a player at division three either. <laughs> so being a manager at Syracuse university where I went to school and worked for the program there was all out of that intent to be a coach. That was all, you know, the purpose behind uh, going there and working for the team there. Yeah, and what was what was Syracuse like? You're obviously, you know, working under a legend in Jim Beheim and a great staff, and you're getting to learn. Like that's probably just going to basketball one on one for four years, and you're they, yeah, they got me for life. I, yeah. I'm realizing how diehard of a Cuse basketball fan I am. They got Jim Beheim uh, Day coming up to honor Coach. Nice. I don't think I'll be able to make it back to campus for that, but I did get to get back there last year and catch his final win. At the wow. Game. That's Which incredible. Is really exciting. And it's cool because I've done everything there is to do in that building. Mm-hmm. So that was my first day in the dome as a pure fan for Syracuse basketball. I've coached against them with the University of Miami. I've been with the program as a manager and, you know, we ran camps there. So that was nice for me to uh, personally uh, get to witness that in, in that way. And they did a great job honoring Jerry McNamara and Hakeem Warwick because they retired their, the numbers into the rafters after that. And it was a, uh, it was a reunion of the 03 national championship team. So Carmelo was there, all the guys from the wow. 03 team, even the managers, some great people involved with that 03 team. Um, so being back to Cuse last spring really uh, brought back some fond memories because those days were the best, man. Those guys that I came win- in with at Syracuse, like uh, my recruiting class mm-hmm. was Johnny Flynn, Rick Jackson, Scoop Jardine, Dante Green. So that was a very talented group. Rick yeah. and Scoop played together at Newman Gretti High School. Uh, Dante and Johnny were McDonald's All-Americans. But it was, it was um, a talented group, and we didn't achieve much success as a team that year. We didn't make the tournament mm-hmm. with all our individual talent. And uh, the following year, we had a nice little run, and it was Johnny's final season, and we lost to Blake Griffin in the Sweet 16. So, you know, uh, it was a, a – stark contrast between the success of those two teams and and some of those insights were were really valuable to me and then as it went on you know my role increased as a manager 
but you know, Johnny had left and those first two years, he was such a, uh, impactful guy in my experience because when I got to campus, it wasn't like I knew Johnny Flynn was our best player. It was, Hey, go to pickup. And this is the deal with the team. Like Josh Wright's your starting point guard. Our best player is arguably this guy or that guy, you know, Devendorf might've been our best player, you know, some, um, Dante Green was considered our best freshman and they took Johnny because he was close with Paul Harris. So Paul Harris and him are from Niagara Falls. Paul was like the top prep school recruit in the country after locking up OJ Mayo <laughs> and, and they got Paul and Johnny together. Like coach Hopkins, I think was the main recruiter for Johnny and Paul coach Hopkins. Who's at university of Washington now mm-hmm. as the head coach, Mike. So Mike was like running the bat. Behan does a great job with delineating his roles. Like, Coach Bernie Fine was in charge of the bigs. They had a guy named Rob Murphy, who used to be the head coach in Eastern Michigan. He worked for the Pistons for a little, who was the head, like, assistant coach assigned to the wings. And then Hopkins had the guards. So, like, there would be – if we only had two baskets, we'd start with groups. One end is the bigs, one end is the guards. You know, and Hop is running that end with the, with the guards. So when I got down to his basket as a sophomore, because I was in the bigs basket as a freshman, that's where I started to gain the appreciation for like the development of, of Johnny and hop more. Yeah. So even that freshman year after practice, I was making a point to help them with their post work, like their post-practice work yeah. but in groups. I was assigned to the bigs. So I, I, I learned a ton and coach fine was there for years. And as a bigs coach for Bayheim, yeah, I mean, he actually has some great fundamentals and he's worked with number one picks, Derek Coleman, Ronnie Cycli, some great, successful NBA player. So he had a lot of his own wisdom, but hop is a little bit more progressive, a little more high energy. So I'm a, I'm a little immature at the time. And I was, you know, more engaged at the guard basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it had to do with Johnny's Johnny being there. Cause Johnny was at that first day of pickup so dominant and I'm watching him play. And I'm like, man, this dude is legit. Like out there competing with a, with a mentality. I, I had never really seen somebody in person that good at basketball. Mm-hmm in that intimate of setting. And, you know, I'm 18 years old. It's like one of my first days on campus. It might've been my first day as a student. And they played at the old Manly Fieldhouse. And that's gone now. Now it's the Carmelo Anthony Center where that court is, is now like a turf field. So they don't even have the court down there anymore, but that's where Bayheim and them used to play their games. Okay. And Dave Bing and them. So it's a cool environment in there and we're just playing and it's just, you know, the program. But yeah, I'll never forget uh, that day. And just in general, like, Johnny's approach to to his own greatness was pure and sacred. He kept it. He kept it. And I always tell the anecdote about rebounding for him, and it's the carrier dome. So they have football. They have lacrosse that uses that same space. So they have to take the court apart. So, you know, Johnny's working out, but they have to transition. (laughs) So he's not done. He's just – the court is gone. And they literally only have the tile at the top of the key and then the tile where the basket is. So I'm standing there under the rim and he's just taking one dribble, pull up threes. He used to look down at the floor, kind of trying to get you to think he's driving and just raise, you know, and he's left hand, right hand just makes. And the gym is empty in terms of the other basketball players or it's just guys they're working on the dome to convert it, get ready for the, the get the field down or open, you know, get the court up and show the field. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what's required for, for greatness. And, and he showed me that. So I'm very indebted to Johnny and, and he had great 
success uh, in his short time in the NBA. Yeah. You know, I, I really do think he could have been a better pro had he stayed in the league and things gone a little different. But I was grateful I got to witness that. Like one of my fraternity brothers in Syracuse, uh, Mikey Carosa, a great guy, took me to sit courtside at the like worst two teams at the NBA at the time. <laughs> so it was in the Meadowlands. And we went to, I think I was a senior in college. So no, I was a junior because it was Johnny's rookie year. So we went, sat courtside. It was Nets, T-Wolves at, at, in New Jersey. And um, yeah, Johnny had a really good game. He had big Al Jefferson. I think he was on the top 10 for a couple of his laydown passes to Al and some of his acrobatic lay-ins. And it was cool for me to have that experience, to see a guy I'd worked with playing in the NBA. You know, obviously I wasn't his primary trainer at any point in his career, but we had a dynamic and he showed love that day and he balled out that day. And, you know, it was a surreal experience. But those Syracuse days, we, you know, we all at that university loved ball pretty much. That was what I gravitated to school to because of as well. You know, the, the culture of Bayheim and Bing and those teams were so good. They're winning like 50 plus games in a row. They had the NBA team, Syracuse Nationals, way, way back. That team leaves. And I feel like that fan base got displaced from that NBA team to this very successful college team. Mm. So when they moved to the Dome, now they had the ability to fill it, as we see today, 30 plus thousand for a regular season college game. You know, that gives it a unique environment. And it, it's, it's, I mean, I could go on about Q's hoops all day. They actually, uh, a good friend of mine from working Q's camp in the summer, we'd lay 10 courts down in the dome. There's <laughs> a guy named Josh Winans. I talked to him yesterday. He runs like the local TBL team, the Syracuse Stallions. Okay. And so, you know, the, just the game in Syracuse is always going to have a unique place because of the way the community embraces it. And there isn't that much else there. Obviously, football has had, McNabb and Harrison, some good players over the years, but they haven't had great success. And lacrosse has been a powerhouse. But, you know, for me, it's it's about the hoops there and and, you know, the the community rallies around it. It's really special. Yeah. What an incredible first coaching style being under Bayheim and getting to witness, you know, what it takes to be a top 10 pick with Johnny Flynn. What do you think the biggest takeaway for you during your time at Syracuse was? Yeah, I mean, Beheim and I are different philosophically, you know, so like I was a little bit um, like unsure about myself because of how intense his approach is and how it's not diametrically opposed to mine, but it's different. Mm -hmm. And um, but the one single takeaway, I mean, coach, coach, um, like coach Laranega, they're both very good at focusing on executing their top priorities. And there was like this, this uh, level of adversity I'd, I'd experienced with Bayheim, And I'm trying to think what, I mean, the one, one major thing I learned from my time there is the requirement of every day. It's greatness, right? Everyday thing. And that's more from Coach Hop than from anybody else. And, you know, Hop would literally say that, right? Greatness is an everyday thing. But he embodied that. He lived it. He expected that of his players. So I'd show up to the Mellow Center. I remember, uh, I think it was either after we got eliminated when I was a senior, like we lost to Marquette and Jimmy Butler and those guys in the tournament. Maybe it was after the season, my junior year. I don't know. But I remember I came to the facility one day. I was like in jeans and a T-shirt or something like that. 
And Coach Hop was like, oh, Aaron's not here to work today. <laughs> and it was just, it was something that I was, a, I was a person, you know, who was still coming into my own as a basketball coach. But that, that level of commitment that I see is required to be an elite coach, an elite trainer, elite player, you know, he called me out right in that, right in that moment, you know, and that's just him being himself organically. And it wasn't like, actually he was upset with me. He was just like, yo, why are you even in here? What are you even in here to do? You're not in here to be on the court and help these guys get better. So what are you doing here? And that stuck with me for sure. Mm. So after Syracuse, you're there for four years as a manager. And then where'd you end up? Coach Fine uh, ran into some problems and he lost his job. But uh, right before that happened, he got me a job. So it was all Bernie, really. Um, that off season, I was messing with some other coaches and I didn't get uh, to a place where I had interest in any of these interviews I took or they had interest in me. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to be a graduate assistant for anybody because I actually hadn't finished my degree. So oh, okay. I still had to finish my undergraduate degree because um, I was a couple like credits shy. So I remember I did that through LSU's distance learning. So as a, a division three assistant, I was still finishing my undergraduate degree, but um, Bernie hooked me up with a guy that I referenced ran court at Lycoming and his and I dynamic uh, was strong and his references were strong. Like everybody was like, you'd be a fool not to go work for this guy. And fortunately, Bernie really leaned on him and made it clear to him that I was uh, the worthy person, a worthy candidate. And we had an informal interview. I mean, formal interview, but it wasn't in person. Okay. And then I came up and did my in-person. But like that point, it was already like, okay, you got the job. Just come get a feel for it. And I remember I'm getting my stuff in the car. I'm driving from Massachusetts. It's about a seven-hour drive from my home to where the Little League World Series is, where that, where that college is in, in central PA. And there was a flood, like it was crazy, freak flooding. So the Susquehanna River was overflowing and Williamsport, Pennsylvania is like right on the Susquehanna River, but it's kind of elevated. So you couldn't even get access to Williamsport. So I had to reroute. I ended up going back to Cuse. It was like, I could go to the city in New York or I could go to Cuse. And I went to Cuse <laughs> for a couple of days to stay dry. And like they were closing rows behind me and everything. So Rancourt, and I were laughing, like, maybe you're not meant to take this job. Like, what is God telling you? Uh, but fortunately, uh, I ended up there for two seasons. And Rancourt was an amazing, is still today an amazing mentor to me. Um, he does an incredible job. And I had aspirations to, to, you know, continue coaching. And he was the one who made that next opportunity for me happen. And he's someone who, while working for him, he made me a better coach, you know, and we had success. We never made the NCAA tournament. Division three is hard. Yeah. You don't get an automatic bid. I mean, uh, an at-large bid as easily. So we never got those auto bids in our conference. We had a very good league, in my opinion, for that level, like a high major division three. Um, and we lost in the conference championship or the conference semis uh, both of my years. And I know we at least got there once. Yeah, I think we lost in the semis my second year. But, you know, we lost to some very high-level teams, and uh, we had a great group of players that I, I, you know, I'm still in touch with some of those guys, and I loved coaching that group. And I was, you know, finding my footing in the player development space. I was very, very new to having ownership of any of that. Um, you know, we had limited resources, so I had to, you know, wear a lot of hats, which helped. 
having the opportunity to work with the guys in the classroom and keeping them academically eligible. There's tons of value there. That's, that's obvious, but also, you know, they know you care about them. Like I, I made some mistakes in my times of light combing and that was a great place to do that. A great place to make some of those mistakes because they didn't stick with me in a, in a way that I couldn't overcome it. They just taught me what I should or should not be doing and how to move from there. And it also, you know, showed me how to be a better coach the next opportunity I had. What were some and, of those uh, mistakes? Fortunate. What were some of those mistakes? Yeah. I mean, some of them were uh, more egregious than others. But, you know, I, it was like the want to help, but not knowing that I'm doing it uh, either in an enabling way or just ineffective. Mm. Like even when it came to the academics, um, I, uh, I would try to kind of overstep. You know what I mean? As, a low st- uh, as opposed to allowing somebody to, to show, hey, I can do this much myself. Not, not uh, I look at Coach Caputo is, is someone that Rancourt grew up with. So he's the head coach of George Washington now. And Chris Caputo was the associate head coach at University of Miami before that. And he was assistant coach in Miami. And that's how I got to UM because Rancourt and Caputo grew up in Queens together. And they all went to Archbishop Malloy and played for the same legendary Rest in peace, uh, Coach Current, uh, who coached Rush Smith and Coach Coach Larinaga uh, at Malloy. So Curran was the baseball and basketball coach there for like four decades. Wow. And um, Caputo always talks about internal motivation, right? Like not just like – I always think about like it overlaps with like almost self-worth and intrinsic self-worth. There's a similar principle here. But the idea of like – guys who work out with music or, you know, the crowd at home, you play better. Like these are external factors, mm-hmm. right? Those aren't internal, internally motivated players that are, you know, only responding to those things. You got to be from here. That's where the most sustainable success will come. And um, I genuinely believe in that. And that was something that I didn't fully understand at the time. Right. I'm just trying to do everything possible to set this guy up for success. And even some of those actions were enabling his, the exact thing I was trying to help him work towards. Ah, okay. So then after that spot, you ended up at Miami, Right. I was a graduate assistant uh, for the program at UM and got my master's in turn for working for the team. And it was a great experience. We had an amazing group of players and coaches and, had some success uh, during those years. And it was fun getting to move to Miami <laughs> as an, an adult after being in the middle of nowhere PA for a couple of years, so to speak. And uh, that was a sharp contrast and, and had a lot of fun, fun being a GA because your life as a GA is, you know, there, there are challenges, it's busy, but your responsibilities are all very fun and you're always on the court and, you know, it was it was a great, great time and I made some, you know, lifelong friendships uh, with those players and other coaches and, and support staff and, you know, fell in love with that city, too, and stayed there for almost a decade, you know, after that, even though I left the U and left the Heat after because, you know, I, I, I was with the U and fortunate while being there that some guys got some head coaches jobs and I might have been able to leave and, and be an assistant coach or an ops guy at other division one programs because our staff was having that success, but I, I stayed on and those guys got me into the heat video room, which obviously was a dream come true, being able to work for the NBA team and our, you know, and I was still staying in Miami and um, 
those years in the video room were extremely valuable, but in a different way, right? I wasn't on the court as much um, and gained some different skill sets with the game and even just that perspective you get from constantly watching that amount of film. And obviously the heat video room is notorious and there's, you know, I think it's good cost. I do think it's the Holy grail of NBA video, games, <laughs> so to speak. And um, my time at the U really prepared me to do the job for the heat. Well, you know, it's like, you know, that progression was real. And when I got to the GA spot at Miami, I was very motivated and very locked into our success. And, uh, those guys looked out for me as a result, uh, not just Caputo, but Coach Larinaga and uh, Huger and Coach Conkle and that whole staff. Uh, our ops guy at the time is now the head coach at Temple, mm. Adam Fisher, and he's got Huger on his staff. Conkle's at Tulsa. He's bounced around a little bit. He was at Louisiana Tech. Huger was at Bowling Green. Now Caputo, like I said, is at GW. So Larinaga's new staff is great. He's got Bill Courtney, DJ Irving, Cote. These guys over there do a great job. But it's cool to see just how that program is. And like I said about Syracuse, I've grown um, affinity for that team. You know, the other day, Cordier Copeland hit this buzzer beater to beat Miami at the Dome. And I'm sitting there, you know, that's to me, I joke around, that's the Winshaw Bowl because, you know, it's my two programs <laughs> I have degrees from and I got to work with. And, you know, I'll, I'll forever be connected to both of them. I have a bench chair from back in the day for wow. both programs and, uh, you know, those are like some of my most prized possessions. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, it's a cool piece of memorabilia. Uh, your time with the Heat, what was what was that like? And what were your, some of your roles and responsibilities? Obviously, like you said, you weren't on the court as much being in the video room. And that video room is notorious. As most people know, Spolster came from there. And that's a that's a big, a big job. What was that like going from college to the NBA? Yeah, it's a really cool experience. I mean, the value is is still paying dividends to this day you know, just strictly from an educational perspective. So I call it a, a PhD in basketball that, that, you know, that really served me in that sense. And just witnessing how those guys function. Um, it's a real family over there. Coach Riley sets it and it trickles down with Spo and, and through the rest of the organization. And it was really special to have those years working with that team. Probably my favorite thing I've ever been a part of as a coach is being able to be on the staff when they started the season 10 and 31 we had Dion Waiters and those guys that era, uh, the year when D-Way was in Chicago. Okay. And it was just incredible because they finished the year 31 and 10 after starting 10 and 31. So to have a 500 record for a team that was, you know, 21 games below 500 yeah. at the midway point was a testament to that group. Roddy Magruder was a player on that team who made that team like uh, as uh, one of the final roster spots. And he's a guy that just embodies mental toughness and consistency. And he worked closely with who was the video coordinator at the time, Eric Glass, who's now player development. So like EG is a Cali, Cali guy who hired me in the video room at the time. He was running the video room. It was his decision along with Coach Riley, Spo, and I mean, uh, Andy as well, Ells, Ellsberg, the GM. And, you know, thank, thank you to those guys because they're so loyal to each other. They're so, you know, intense with their work it, you have no other way you're going to be when you're there and then you know there is a family that you're you're in uh, by being with the heat organization and they they i mean you've seen all the culture talk and there is a virtue to to what they're doing yeah it's great great success there for good reason and and it's unique in some of the ways 
Spolstra carries himself. Like you said it, Spo was in the video room, right? So he acknowledges the power of that room and he maximizes that. And he gives you a lot of autonomy with how you move. So you get ownership of things and there's so much to do. It really challenges you and you test you to get better. So, you know, let alone what I learned about basketball, but I just learned how to, to do so many different things. And it was a, it was a great test of my own self-discipline and my work ethic and it helped build some of that. Um, Spo isn't the only person in the organization that came up through the video room, right? You have so many people yeah. from Eric Amsler, who's in the front office to Adam Simon, who's in the front office to, you know, coaches like Eric Glass. And now their head video coordinator is Mario Casamajor, who's excellent to me, a great human being who really understands the values of basketball and, and uh, is a great basketball mind. And we used to work together in pre-draft a little bit before he got to the heat. So, you know, it's, it's cool for me to see it on the inside. And then now after leaving, see, you know, I have a trust in them because <laughs> of the bias, but um, you know, they've had great success since I left. And, you know, my year of us going 500 and not making the playoffs was an amazing achievement to witness. And we had Dwayne my first year and then he left and then he came back. So even like the city responding to him, mm -hmm. I felt as a coaching staff, it was like, okay, we moved on. We figured out how to not have him anymore, but the heat in the city never is yeah. going to move on for him. So when he came back, it was like, wow. And it was cool to see that intimately a little bit, you know, he's got egos in the locker room that might've been challenged and his wisdom and his voice was so valued and respected. You know, obviously he'd been through it. He had the experience, he had the championships, but you know, he wasn't, he was selective in what he said. And, you know, as a result, people took, made a point to listen every time he spoke up too. And we had Juwan Howard, Fizdale, um, Dan Craig. We had an amazing coaching staff and learning up close from those guys. Um, it's you know it's if chris quinn is still there too and he was in there as long as much as the video guy like he's in there as much as coach bolster because we had to be there anytime spo was in there they wanted us there but spo i mean even how he treats like christmas he gives everybody a book with a letter wow it's it's you know it's cool it's it's intentional and and it carries some with it we had a staff retreat and things leading into training camp and those things were done with a purpose that to me i'm sure other nba teams are doing at that level but those are the ones that I think separate themselves and create kind of competitive advantages. And, you know, coach, coach Riley's not playing around. Like, yeah, he, he wants to win, but Spo has put his own feel and twist on it. And it's not any less intense. It's just, he's got his focus where it lies. And, you know, the tropes that he gets excited about and involved with, you know, we're, we're fascinating. And, and he's working with his horse blinders on, trying to get ready for this. I mean, it might be free agency. It might be in the summer during the summer league. And he's, it's like game seven NBA finals intensity. Yeah. You know, so that's what's required for greatness. And it was really valuable for me to be around that and close to that. And I'm forever indebted to that organization for that opportunity. Yeah. It's a beautiful marriage between Spo and Pat Riley and what they've done. And as much as people joke about the heat culture, you could be the first to attest. It's definitely a real thing. You have any Spolstar or Pat Riley stories you could share? Yeah, it's not for everybody to talk about that. I mean, I don't, I, I don't have too much uh, entertain. Like, you know, I, I've done uh, some embarrassing things in my days as a manager and, uh, and as an assistant coach. But in the video room, you know, I was just locked into, like I said, I, I was very rarely on the court, especially in the beginning. Yeah. I didn't go on the road in the beginning. 
um, I thought it was pretty funny because one of the other video guys used to tell me like, people walk in the video room, you're not supposed to react. I'm a social being, I, I interact, I engage people. So that was against my instinct. Like if someone walks in my office, I would at least say hello and get back to work. But they had, uh, specifically had, one of my coworkers was like, no, wow. that's not, you know, he was like a superior. So I, he was like, you could just use the reflection of the monitor right here in the top corner. You could see who it is, keep back, get back if you needed to find out who it is. And it was whatever. So I, I had that in my head and I'm in the video room by myself. And it was when Gordon Haywood was free agent. So they're recruiting Hayward. We were one of the candidates, but everybody was at summer league. I think Chris Quinn and him had the same agent. So they had Chris stay back and help with the recruitment. Obviously we didn't get him. Mm -hmm. Obviously he, he went to Charlotte. Um, but we thought he was going to Boston, I think because of Steven's connection, you know, from college and things like that. So I'm sitting at my desk working and everybody's gone. And in comes Gordon with Coach Spo and Coach Riley. And they're torn them around the facility. So I'm thinking, oh, I better ignore these guys. You know <laughs> what I mean? Stick, stick to what I'm taught. Be that robot on the computer. So apparently Spo thought I was nervous. Oh. And he's going back and him and Pat are laughing because they were like, oh, Aaron was nervous. He didn't even want to say hi when us and Gordon walked in the gym. <laughs> I mean, walked in the video room. So I, you know, I think they made me spin around in my chair and, and introduce myself. But I remember thinking in my head, like, I would have been happy to, to schmooze you guys and welcome Gordon. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I was just trying to do by the book, <laughs> trying to keep, uh, keep uh, my, my boss proud, so to speak, or my coworkers proud. But Instead, Spoh thought I was anxious. Um, I don't know. I don't know. There's some funny, funny stories. Just, just the 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 dynamic between them was beautiful. I, I saw a quote from Spoh talking about how they were on a losing streak his first year with the Big Three, mm -hmm. and Pat one day just sat him down, and it was like in the middle of that losing streak, and they just sat there, and Pat didn't say anything, and they just drank wine together. So like Pat had that feel of what was neat. he'd been through it. Yeah. So I mean we we lose to the Sixers, and that time I was on the road. We're playing Philly. Whiteside, I think he ran into the locker room. Something he was sick or something like. I don't know if it was because he was trying to guard and I don't remember. <laughs> but um, they were up big. They had us on the ropes, and I think we came back crazy in the fourth quarter and still lost a close game. So like we didn't really start playing until the fourth quarter. Suppose like. He's going through it. And, and I feel like he was inclined to maybe come down on them. You know, obviously you're selective. You know, sometimes after a loss, you might not want, want, you know, hey, we did our best or whatever. But it was kind of like, hey, we didn't come to play. Had we come to play those first three quarters, we could have won the game. I don't know where his mind was, obviously. But I'm in there cutting the game up, and I just rare opportunity to hear and see the interaction between him and Pat. And Coach Riley was the one to kind of – Put him and eat like, hey, you don't need to rip into these guys. Wow. They just want, you know, they gave that comeback. You know, he didn't say that specifically, but you could tell he helped Coach Spo calm down and know the best way to push which button. So they're, you know, they're both masterminds in their own ways, but they have such a great dynamic that it helps them get more out of each other. And Pat's experience, you know, nobody can mirror what he's been through, and to have that so close and have that that ability for Pat to read Spo and vice versa, I think really plays into their their greatness as organization yeah definitely what was the decision like to leave the heat so next year 
moving on and obviously you know working for Miami Heat that's a dream job for a lot of people and you talked about a lot of people who have worked there and started in the video room climbing the ranks so what was the decision like to leave yeah that was not an easy one you know and it's something at times during my first couple years there even my final year there I believed that I would be there forever, you know, like others who had become the wallpaper. That was their their job. It's rare to find stability working in the NBA like that. And that's a great thing. They have a process oriented place and they are somewhere I was willing to, you know, commit my career to being there because it, it made sense to me and I felt it was in line with who I am. So to leave was not easy and um, unexpected, essentially for me, uh, if you, you know, asked myself when I just got that job, but it, it was the right thing to do. And I talk about it as like a side street to success, right? We don't have that direct path on our marathons. We're all each individually on necessarily. So I'm very grateful. I was willing and able to leave um, something that, you know, it wasn't a soul crushing job, but you spend, all, you know, I would have been in that video room four or five, six years, probably. I'd still probably be in that video room. <laughs> And the experiences I've had since then, you know, are ones I couldn't have had. So it's, you know, it's that trade-off is tough. Like I would bike in to work. Spo would be like, okay, Lance, <laughs> but it was nice. You could see the, you could be outside. You could be in the nature. I'd see the sunrise and then I'm going into the video room and I'm coming out in darkness. Yeah. Right. So that is a, isn't something that was a surprise. I knew that comes with the territory. That's part of what it was. But those are things that now I don't have to be succumbed to anymore, living in sunny Southern California. Um, but no, all, in all seriousness, it was something that it hurt because I felt I was letting down people like Eric Glass, like Coach Spolstra. Um, and that's where it was the biggest challenge because they had done so much for me and had been there for me. And I thought were, you know, willing to keep me around. And they were. There was opportunity for, for me to stay there and you know, that's not lost on me. And like Caputo talked about it because he could sense I was on my way out and he kind of trying to talk me down. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you know, guys would kill to be in that position, right? Trying to gain your perspective on, on the things that were challenging me and making me decide I wanted to leave, which was multifaceted, right? It was more complex than just this one thing or the other. Um, so ultimately to leave in the way that I did because it was sudden, was where I really felt bad for those guys who had given me that opportunity because I didn't want to hurt them by not being there for them anymore, mm. you know? But beyond that, I had to do what was best for me and everything I'm into, and it was clearly the best decision I've made in my career, honestly. And it's, um, it's something that I didn't think that I had. Like, the you know, I'm being honest with you, it was tough. Yeah. But in the moment, I was like, oh, no, no, whatever, <laughs> like trying to – trying to not be vulnerable about those realities, but I've come to terms with those realities. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that that's the choice I made and I would still make that same choice today. Mm. I, I'm surprised. I surprised the 2015, 2016 childhood version of myself to make that decision. But I got very fortunate because I left at the time I did, I think it really leveled up my coaching career and being in Miami, working in player development, I was able to take a lot of that knowledge from the heat that I had gained and apply it. And it was very effective for me in that space of pre-draft and other ways I've been able to stay around the game at a high level since leaving. 
and training and pre-draft is what you went into after being with the Heat? Well, I mean, that coach Nick I was talking about who's with the Hornets, he was doing his pre-draft in Miami at the time. So it was nice to just have a gym to be around on a daily basis right away. And we'd always talked about doing that when we were together at the UM. So then it kind of made an opportunity for me to work in that space with him. He calls it the preparation. That's what his LLC is for that at the time. And they, they had it done an amazing job for a number of years. So it was in the groove of the preparation in Miami. So it was something that I loved being around. And then from there, Nick went to the NBA and I got to work in pre-draft with Miami Hoop School, Andrew Moran, who's another local Miami trainer. He was a head high school coach for Cameron and Carlos Boozer's team at Columbus mm -hmm. with Jax Richardson and, and Jace Richardson and, and some other great uh, young high school players. And that was all like something wouldn't have been possible, you know what I mean, had I not had the opportunity to work in pre-draft with Nick. So, it, it, you know, it's just one opportunity leads to the next and they were the right guys to align with. And that pre-draft stuff is so much fun. You know, it's a, it's something you really cherish as a person who's about real development. And I make the analogy when I was in the video room for the heat. Yeah. At that point, at the end, I was still, um, not working guys out, but I would be, you know, helping Juwan Howard with workouts or helping rebound in spots or on the road, you know, during shoot around, but it was, wasn't like these players development is up to you, Aaron, ever. No one's, you know, maybe, uh, it, you know, actually we signed Derek Jones Jr. I was around, so I was the first one to get him in the gym. And I actually had a little bit of a prior relationship with Derek, but that Spo just needed somebody to work him out and the team was on the road. Or Chris Bosh having his blood thing caused him to not be on the court. So he still needed to, you know, it wasn't like he had been shut down yet, but he couldn't do contact. So he's trying, trying to stay in shape. Uh, Eric and Bill Ferran run the strength conditioning for the heat. So Bill's like calling me like, Hey, CB wants to get on the court, obviously working with a hall of famer yeah. in a one-on-one -on -one setting like that. I'm learning more from him. He's dictating more of what we should be doing. <laughs> I mean, he would be great and be like, Aaron, what do you want to do? But, you know, I learned from those settings, but it was like I said, few and far between. So the analogy I was going to make is uh, a dog that like works or lives at a butchery the best butchery in the city, in the world, but he can't touch any of the meat. So then <laughs> I go to pre-draft and now it's like, I'm unleashed. Yeah. I'm able to, to just get on the court and engage these guys. I'm not limited to doing video, but I would incorporate the video. And obviously I still do with my training and my player development. Um, you know, it's a huge, huge piece to doing that. I think the best way possible for, especially an NBA athlete and the level of uh, approach to the, the approach to that level. I think video is even more valuable than a, a high school athlete. Um, but you can still obviously find, find it for any, anybody you're working with. Uh, and yeah, the pre-draft days in Miami are like the glory days of pre-draft for me <laughs> because we just, we just were at this newly built facility in the city it was built with uh, like state, like city money uh, in Overtown at Gibson Park. And it's a great facility with the Overtown Youth Center and Optimus uh, next door to the Overtown Youth Center, which is Alonzo Mornings facility. Okay. And the Overtown Optimus Club operates out of there and they do great things for the kids in the community there. But it's an amazing gym and it was new to Miami. And it's just, there's a, 
energy that comes from walking around in that neighborhood at six in the morning and five, six, seven days a week. And, you know, that being coming to work is crazy. And you're working with these guys that, you know, are great athletes. Fortunately for me that, you know, I, I didn't have uh, any negative experiences there. Like even, you know, guys you bump heads with who really care about getting better. They, they, you know, they're not a knucklehead. You're, you're gaining something from that experience and they are too. So, I mean, I really still to this day love pre-draft. I worked in uh, pre-draft out here since I've been out here as well. And, you know, I'm going to continue to stay in that space. It kind of became a little bit of a niche. Once I left the team side, that's kind of how it felt like, okay, my season is now pre-draft. My season is, and my team is this class. So for the last, you know, since I left the heat in 2018, okay, so, you know, 2018, 19, till you know all the way up and through this last draft i felt uh that's kind of how i've filled the void of, of being a, a coach for a team but <laughs> i am open to doing that but my work with haiti does make it challenging so it's it's a balance and um i was coaching high school in miami a little but being in cali it's not something i've jumped on with any programs yet in terms of a college or, or pro or high school teams or even uh, elementary middle school <laughs> i'm you know i'm devoted to the work i have now and like it takes me uh all over the world with the haitian national team a little bit um so like we'll be in indianapolis for all-star break next month mm. we were in puerto rico last month for the fiba three-on-three america um, and obviously these are all during the the dog days of the season so uh it's cool to to look back on that progression because you know as a college coach your season is all year and same with the nba you know, it's a year round thing to be, a, you know, working with that team and it, and it consumes you year round and um, for better, you know, that's how it should be. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's definitely opened up some more opportunity for me to act on my own prerogative with the work I'm doing since leaving the team side. Yeah, I want to get into the Haitian basketball stuff. I know that in Miami is where you started to get into the Haitian culture and the Haitian basketball culture, right? Yeah, it was being with the Heat. Uh, it was uh, when I first became aware of the national team movement through Coach Nick and his boys getting hired as the national team head coaches for Haiti as they were trying to start that program really uh, after very limited play. I think they had a tournament in the late 70s. Like there was Central Basket. I think it was in Puerto Rico. They participated, didn't win. So when I got involved in 2017, there was a tournament we were going to play in in 2018 that was like ending that 37 year absence of FIBA play for Haiti. Wow. So that was the ambition that I got hooked into. And it was a narrative change project for the country through this success of a national team. That was uh, how it was pitched to me. And um, they went, the coaches that were hired for the national team went to Haiti. Nick uh, was one of those coaches and he really was the centerpiece to that group that, got those other guys involved because it was all his people from Rio Grande Valley Vipers where he was coaching at the time. So their head coach at the time, Matt Brazi, him, a guy named Cody Toppert, who's now also head coach in the G for the go-go. They went to Haiti. Um, and this was a year after Nerlens Noel went to Haiti. So there's a guy, Pierre Volmera, who runs Power Forward International for a long time that was bringing players out of Haiti. Scala Bissier is one of them. Obviously, he's got a lot of great success and continues to as he's in the G League now. And that guy is based in Massachusetts 
and Nick and I had some overlap with him. Um, so essentially that was the thread. So Nerlens does a camp in 2016. Nerlens' parents are from Haiti. And Nerlens is so impressed. I guess he jumped in with the kids. It was like a U19 identification camp for the national The Federation's leadership uh, was, you know, responsible for it. And they did a second one in June of 2017. So that second camp, Nick and those guys went and then I uh, was aware of that. So that's, that was my, my way I got exposed to it, but I was still in the heat video room. We didn't look at it anything more than coaching the national team at the time. But over the course of that year, getting ready for that tournament, it became clear there's opportunity to more with basketball, obviously. And there's, there's missed opportunities because organizationally uh, we weren't as a fed, the Haitian basketball federation where isn't where it is today. And there were other challenges, you know, just limited resources. So that's when, through the request of the Haitian Basketball Federation, I formed this entity that I am working with and running today with them and other entities in Haiti, which is called the Haiti Basketball Foundation. So that was, you know, kind of our group of national team coaches collectively and, and you know, the federation, hey, we, we need to prepare for this tournament coming up. And we need to find a, maybe we can raise some tax deductible money, but it was kind of like we, I backed into it in that sense, because, you know, we formed this team and we formed this organization, but obviously to do it justice, it's not just about that one men's national team. It's about the whole national team program. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the ambitions behind that are about helping the people of Haiti, whether they're great basketball players or not, it's just helping everybody. So finding a way now to do this right, and it takes time and educating myself, not aware of the intricacies, and I'm still continuing to learn more about them, of the challenges in Haiti that are specific to Haiti and the systemic issues there, but also just transitioning from being only a basketball coach, of course. Um, so it's been a really amazing journey. I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to work with the Haitian Basketball Federation and my other grassroots partners in Haiti. And that's, you know, that's going to be a lifelong project. And hopefully sooner rather than later, you're seeing that national team suiting up again. Um, and, you know, ideally we're playing in the Olympics in L.A. in 2028. Um, but, you know, the the movement with basketball in Haiti is a really special one. And to me, it is the most powerful example of sport for good in the entire world. And I say that with bias, but I say that with genuine honesty. And, you know, I'm biased to the power of basketball and I'm biased <laughs> to the beauty of Haiti. So maybe I'm, you know, coming up with it from that. But I, I, all I see and the more I learn, the more it legitimates that truth to me. Wow. So what are some of the things you guys are doing with the foundation? What's the goal and what's kind of the basketball work? And are you guys going over there a lot or what does exactly the foundation entail? Yeah, so the focus is the work with the national teams and supporting the national teams, supporting the federation, and as well as grassroots in the country. So okay. the grassroots work has to do with resource, basketballs, facilities, you know, coaching. Um, so yeah, we do. I do go as much as I can. I love going there, um, but it's not somewhere I've been recently. I haven't been since uh, last year. Okay, and. Uh, you know, I've been a handful of times, but it's daily on WhatsApp with the 
people in Haiti that I'm working with. And for me, I have to raise money to be able to add value. So it's um, an education and healthcare project when we are successful at our goals. But right now, our resource isn't there. We're able to pay for kids' tuition and, you know, we're funding camps when we go and we're making donations to the community when we go or even sending donations you know separate and when we go we we host a camp and feed the kids and you know i'm vetting different grassroots programs across the country so that i'm able to engage the entire landscape the federation is so concentrated with its chapter in port-au-prince that's the most active chapter the one in the capital okay but that's actually where it's most difficult right now to make an impact because of the the challenges and the tense environment in the streets of Port-au-Prince right now. I haven't been to Port-au-Prince myself since 2019. The last four times I've gone to Haiti, I've flown or gone directly into the north. So Cape Haitian and that surrounding area. And it's, it's going to be something that, you know, it's gonna require more than the work we're doing with basketball, but we have an opportunity with basketball to fill voids of, you know, creating this uh, pathway with the national teams and great success for high level players. But also if a kid doesn't love basketball, but can go get fed and have a constructive extracurricular activity, there's benefits to that. I think the best grassroots basketball youth program in Haiti is run by a guy named Dave Filzami. And it's in Marta Saint and City Soleil, two of the more difficult areas of the country. And he's able to feed and educate these kids through his basketball program. And it's amazing. I mean, they're giving kids money to do book reports and they're um, giving kids tutors who aren't getting their GPA high enough to get the minimum GPA to get a tuition paid for by their program. So if you're not, you know what I mean? So like, that's one example of someone we've supported um, in a couple of different ways and work closely with as much as possible. But he's doing so much for those two communities. The, the goal, if we're successful down the line, is emulating the work he's doing in Marchessant and City Soleil all across the country. Um, and then, obviously, like I'm saying, this, this element of the national teams is a great, exciting element in the, the people of Haiti really rally behind their team and have such pride in that national team that I do think it's, it's just as important to the mission uh, as, you know, feeding these kids, because I think they serve each other. I think there is a synergy to that. The success of the men's and women's national teams is going to have impact beyond the game that is in, you know, you can't put a a price on that. So it's, it's a day-to-day raising money, you know, figuring out because we're kind of building the plane as we fly. There's a new precedent here that we're setting. So, you know, it, it takes different forms. Um, fortunately, FIBA has built this basketball for good, cha- uh, you know, campaign and movement. So they've been great supporters. They've donated basketballs to Haiti. Then there's the, the other people who are um in Haiti doing great work with limited resources so like guys similar to Dave Fields and me in areas where they don't have as much at their disposal are doing everything they can for these kids so there's a guy in St. Michel which is a more rural area and um a little bit more difficult to access so I've only been there once 
but he's a guy who I met in 2018 and he stayed in touch with me and kept me aware of the activities with the game in his local community. So witnessing that, that was in the spring of uh, 2022, seeing that firsthand was amazing because it's, it's something that proves that, okay, it's alchemic working with him, you know, whatever we're able to do for him is going to go where it's, we're being told it's going and it's going to benefit these kids in, in ways that they need and are, you know, imperative to their functioning. So it's very impressive, the different pockets and the different grassroots entities besides the Federation chapters alone that are, are working with the game over there. And I want to be a financial arm to them. I want to be a capacity builder for them and the Federation. That's incredible. Yeah, and it was a long west, long winded answer. Uh, they could have been a little more clear, but it's, you know, it's something to me that for basketball people, we get the value of the game. Mm-hmm. It's obvious what this game can do for a place uh, that has need, which we everywhere, United States, um, and domestically, we have plenty of examples of it. But in Haiti specifically, I believe that the lack of resource of the game hasn't, um, I see it firsthand, you witness it, it hasn't depleted the culture. The culture and the movement for basketball exists despite the lack of resource. So if we can even give it uh, limited resources compared to where it is now, it can really go a long way. But the whole thing has to be with the vision of self-sustaining in mind, right? And so that's why I love working with these community-based organizations because they can become self-sustaining and they can take on their own life and, and move in a way that I obviously, I can't impact it um, directly like they could. That's um, So, you uh, know, teach a man to fish type, type vibe. Yeah. We've done coaching seminars. Um, we work with, with youth when we go, but it's something, you know, I want a utility fund to help the diaspora as well. I want to be able to help Haitian basketball people that are here in the States and around the world. But for now, and the majority of our focus is in the country, grassroots there, not, you know, like Power Forward International reference, brought kids and got them educated here in the States. That's a great thing, great opportunities for them, but that isn't really the mold of our organization. The work we do internationally has to do with supporting the national team. That's, that's an amazing foundation. I mean, I know for me and a lot of people in the States, basketball is, you just picture it where you are, you know, the the high school journey to D1 to I got to get to the NBA or pro somehow. And then you see it in other areas and you see the tools it can, it can be and what it can create for other people's well-being, education, whatever the case may be. That sounds like an amazing foundation. And at the end, we'll definitely get the links out and you know, hopefully be able to spread the message because that's, that's, thank you. Spence. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. That sounds it's, like it's great fulfilling you know, work. They, they uh, have done a great job with the Haitian basketball federations or uh, growth and consistency and stability since I got involved and those guys, you know, I can't even imagine the challenges they face and they're still making it happen. So it's, you know, it's an honor to be a part of it. And for me, it's like, if we can shift away from survival instinct and shift towards purpose, right? Purpose driven. And even if you don't know what your purpose is, you're now relentless and relentless in relentless pursuit of figuring out what that is. Mm-hmm. So that's in, you know, in every aspect of what we're doing that feeds into the work. So, you know, with Haiti, 
the the people I've connected with that are doing great work in the country have really helped me understand how we can do that with basketball there as well. And it's not easy and it has to be Haitian run, Haitian led for it to be as successful as it possibly can be. So, you know, I'm excited to see where this leads and, you know, what we've accomplished so far is a great success to me, but I know that there's more that we can do and will do with this. Speaking of finding your purpose, do you think that your work with the Haitian Basketball Foundation is your purpose? I mean, working with the game in general. You know, this is something I'm very lucky that it's very at the forefront of the work, like the social good uh, that comes out of it, um, the social justice element of the work in Haiti. But I mean, my purpose is is working with the game in general. So yeah, it's uh, it's, you know, teaching a kid here in LA and it's also being able to get a basketball shipped over there for a kid over there. You know, it, it, it's all in line with, with what I see as my purpose. And, you know, that's what the game is about. It's about helping other people. And it's about, you know, it's a conduit for that. It's a, it's a vehicle for social change in Haiti. It's a vehicle for social change here. But, you know, I'm not as uh, uh, tangibly involved in that here besides, you know, training players and having the impact that we do as a coach in that way, which is obviously to me something that I take great pride in. And I think there's a lot of multidimensional aspects to that, that make it something that is part of my purpose as well. Is there a decision you had to make or a sacrifice you have to make to be living that purpose? Or is there a difficult decision you've had to make to stay yeah, in that? I mean, even, even like we talked about the sacrifice of leaving the video room, you know, that's uh, that was a sacrifice I had to make to, to, to step into that purpose and, and see that through. And just in general, like, um, we, we always have to make some level of sacrifice to, you know, make sure that this is, is what it's supposed to be. Cause it is about service at the end of the day. And, you know, I, I don't pay myself a salary through Haiti basketball foundation. And that's something that, you know, is because we don't raise enough money and everything goes back into mm -hmm. it. But obviously there are different levels to what that could look like, but that's not to say that if I'm making a salary out of, basketball that's no longer my purpose it's just you know i i have to find uh a way for for the game to to sustain me as well so <laughs> yeah that's the challenge figuring out that balance yeah that balance is real and you know that's not what this the haiti foundation is a source of at all right and there are people who, who you know run nonprofits and pay themselves a six-figure salary well yeah. if we're raising eight, nine, 10 figures, uh, annually, then yes, somebody's definitely going to be on salary. And, um, you know, that's a great, uh, goal to have for Haiti basketball. But, you know, for me, I, I'm intrigued to see what the next chapter of my coaching career looks like, you know, and, uh, I'm excited to, you know, speak to, to you today because it helps me acknowledge that it's, it's time for me to create something that is mine uh, outside of Haiti basketball, because that's not mine and never was. I just am fortunate enough to to be involved in the ways that I am. So yeah, I'm intrigued to see what you know that chapter of my coaching career looks like, because that's kind of what's next. You know, whether it's uh, my boy has the preparation. You know, everyone has their basketball businesses. Um, what my version of that's going to be is is in uh, is 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 currently in motion, but you know, still. Uh, 
got some work to do. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is what's next for Aaron Winshaw? Do you have any, you know, like you said, you have something in motion? Is is it coaching? Is it training? Is it pre-draft? Is there a certain timeline you want to be doing something by? What's I know you when did, when did you move to LA? Less than two years ago. Okay, so you recently out here in SoCal, new basketball scene for you. So yeah, what's what's yeah, on the horizon? Yeah, great. You know, like I I uh, been grateful that since I got here, I've been able to interact with the grassroots basketball community here and gain a feel for it. And I think there is going to be something within that landscape that I'm a part of more so than I am today. But you know, it's it's uh, unclear exactly what that will be. As I said, I have this event at all-star breaking indie coming up next month so a lot of focus on that we're really excited we're going to do a local clinic uh with haitian youth in indianapolis and we're holding an event that evening uh to raise awareness and some funds for the haitian national you know basketball teams and grassroots programs in haiti and you know for me as i said pre-drafts coming up so yeah definitely getting excited for for that window but um I was over at the, the G League game for the South Bay Lakers and the Stockton Kings to go watch Scal play a couple of days ago. And there's, you know, a sense of community that's starting to be established here as well. It's never going to be like it was in Miami, uh, but it will be its own version of, of itself. And it's going to take time as it is to figure out what that's going to be. But, you know, there's so many people doing such great work with the game here. I'm happier to be here than ever, you know, and they're, they're, are guys that I've interacted with people who are working in basketball here since I got here that have been very impressive to see what they're doing. And, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to be able to add value to an already thriving grassroots basketball community here. So obviously I'm excited to start and continue working with youth college and pro players in this area, but yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to, I have to keep certain things closer to the vest, right? There's nothing too exciting <laughs> to share anyways, but um, there, I, I got to keep certain things uh, secret for now. But, you know, I mean, I I uh, have ended up in a place I never expected, right? So I, I'm sure that that's coming for me as well. Um, and we'll see. We'll see what, what pre-draft looks like this year. Um, and we'll see what people I align with. But it's... it's um, it's been really cool to see the organism of basketball in South Southern California and Northern California uh, since coming here because it's so strong and it's not by accident and it's pure to the game. So in due time, I'll, I'll be able to answer, you know, uh, episode two. <laughs> yep. I hope I got a better answer for you on that. Spence. No, I appreciate that. I'm excited to see, you know, what's next for you. And yeah, like you said, you're in a great spot, a lot of opportunity and SoCal basketball is great. Um, when I ask you to think of a basketball memory from playing, coaching, training, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Ooh. Yeah, I, I guess a lot of things are coming through at once. But the first thought I had was just an idea of, of Haiti basketball because we were on the topic. So there's a small town called Tiguav or Petit Gov. So like small grove is what it stands for. And it's like two, three hours from the capital of Haiti. And my first time in Haiti, I, I got to go visit there as a guy, Coach Justin Burnett, guy who's uh, 
got a couple of good players uh, in the States now from Haiti. And Coach Justin took me to this town where one of those kids uh, was from. And Tiguav is in the mountains, by the water. And there was a game. They play a game every year on the same day because there was a, a horrible accident. Some power lines had fallen and they had killed a, a lot of people. So it was on the court where that took place. So every year, the day of that tragedy, they play a game in this town wow. to commemorate those people. And we had just finished up this youth clinic uh, at another part of the city, uh, somewhere else in Tigua. And we go over to this game. And um, the environment is really cool. It's, the court is fenced in. You have that view of the water and those mountains. And it's a party, you know, and it's just something that was beautiful to get to see. And they actually let me wear a uni and sit on a bench. <laughs> so, like, my team uh, was down. We got this lefty guard, James, who has since moved to the States, um, who was bringing the ball up for them. And, and I'm thinking, let me, let me in the game, you know. And uh, they still weren't trying to play me. <laughs> and this guy, Jimmy, Jimmy was our big. Jimmy and I actually did a camp overseas last summer. At, Jimmy moved to Geneva. So we did a camp uh, in eastern France together last summer. Wow. And uh, we were laughing about this day because he was like, man, come on. So he's going to check in the game. And he makes me go with him to the scorer's table. And my jersey's like triple X, like way too big on me. I look a little foolish. I'm a little anxious for real. I'm exhausted from three, four days of being uh, working really hard and nervous about how it's going to go. So then I look up and there's like a little Haitian girl there by the table and I, and I give her a pound. So I reach out and give her a pound. She comes back with like 15 little girls, like all of them like that with their fists out. So I was like, oh man, like, that put me at ease, right? It was like, first of all, it was adorable. And it was so like, you know, organic and tapped into the source. Like they were just like, oh, let's give this blonde a, a, a fist bump. They're not used to seeing white people, <laughs> I think. And, and they kind of look at me funny because of that. And um, so it made me less anxious for sure. And I get in the game and I never get back tapped, dude. Like I can handle the ball at a high level. Like yeah. that's all I think I do very well. I could shoot it a little bit, but I handle it at a very high level. So they don't, people don't take it from me. And I go by the first defender and his length and he back taps it and they steal it, throw it over my head, dunk. So I'm like, oh shoot, we got to get it out quick out of the net and, you know, run right back at him. No, nah, man, they take the ball out of the net. They're nodding at me like this with the ball on his shoulder. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and the whole place is loud as shit. And, you know, we're like down. 18 or something at that point so no it was a you know very vivid <laughs> experience and we have a guy on our team his name is lebron uh like lebron but with a u uh, and lebron's from there and he's really athletic player so i was thinking man we're good we're gonna be fine we got james we got lebron but not nah, we were in trouble but fortunately that lefty could really shoot and because i was in the game he kind of got off the ball so i was just making plays for him and he was getting a lot of open shots and others were getting him the ball. He started feeling it. And we came all the way back. The young kid who's from that town, he now plays for University of Fort Lauderdale, Carl Bigort. Carl came in, hit a corner three. Uh, I think he was like 17 at the time. Um, so that was just such a vivid day of, of hooping in my only semi-pro game of my career. <laughs> I made one floater uh, and we won by one. Wow. So that, you know, that value of that uh, memory uh, that whole day was a very 
transformative and powerful day. And that's how it ended before we drove back to Port-au-Prince. And that was the last full day I was in Haiti on my first time in Haiti. Uh, so, you know, that's one of the more vivid and memorable moments with the game that I, I've ever had. That's incredible. Thanks, you, thanks for sharing that. I felt like I was there. You told that story in great detail. Yeah, I've got, I, I appreciate you, Spence, man. You're a great listener. I know I've been rambling a bunch. But, yeah, that, that Tigua of Day, uh, it's amazing. Coach Junior is uh, the coach locally there who still does an excellent job. He just got a kid who's really good. We call him Zion. Uh, he moved to New York, who's about 18. He's a really probably the best young player out of that city uh, in the last couple of years. But they do an amazing job with the the girls program there. And we were fortunate to send them a hoop and send them some supplies. But that's one of those guys that I want to help more. Like they go to Southeast Haiti. So Tiguav is kind of Southwest. Like Haiti's almost, you know, shaped like a hand, say the border of the DR is there. And the Port-au-Prince capital is there, like K-Patients up here. So Tiguav is on the way to Jeremy over here. Like Tiguav is here in the South. So Southeast Jacmel is like over here. So they've been traveling to Jacmel to play in these organized tournaments. And it's like, that's great. The interaction of these different communities, the game bringing together these different communities. So it's like, takes them resources to be able to take a whole team to Jacmel. And that's the type of thing that right now I can't support Tiguav's travel from Tiguav to Jacmel. But if I am successful and down the line, that is the type of things that we want to have infrastructure for and built in. And, you know, it's great that they're already doing it to the level that they are. Mm-hmm. And the guy in, uh, in, in Sudeast, in, uh, in Jacmel, this guy named Jonas Lyle, is amazing because he's over there making things happen. He has a program called You Just Vibes, and that's his basketball program in Jacmel. So, you know, they have gotten my attention. I've never been there. I never met Jonas in person, but just the nature in which he's approached me and how he's built his organization, it's clear it's another one of these entities I want to get behind. So, uh, you know, there's some synergy there in the South, and it's good because it, it needs to it needs to happen over there, um, you know, because these are things that our community can congeal and get behind, just like everywhere in the world. Um, so, no, the the Tiguav uh, basketball scene is legit. Yeah, that's for sounds sure. like it. Um, when you're 80 plus years old and, you know, your basketball stuff is, is done and you're thinking about it all, what's, what do you think your number one accomplishment will be? Well, if I'm still around, man, that'd be a great blessing. And hopefully it wouldn't be done at that point. Right. That's how I look at this. I'll be that old ball coach, (laughs) but, um, my greatest accomplishment with the game to this point or what, what it will be at that point. What it will be. What yeah, saying. what it will be. What do you think it will be, or what do you hope it will be? That's such a tough conjecture. I really wonder. I wonder what it would be. I mean, I think it, at that point it would not be soured, you know, still have the understanding and appreciation for what the game has given me. If I can keep that perspective to that stage of my life, if I'm still around, then, you know, that would be an amazing accomplishment. That's awesome. Uh, we like to end every episode with what is one piece of advice that you would go back and give to your younger self? So with all your experience, all your coaching and playing and traveling and everywhere you've been, what is that one piece that you wish you may have known earlier? I'm going to give my younger player self some advice. 
uh, as a high school player, I was never a threat to score the ball. So that's the advice I would, <laughs> I would give myself. Uh, you you got to put the ball in the basket. Stop being so selfless as a point guard and thinking that everybody else has a better chance to make a shot than you. When ultimately, obviously, I wasn't even a threat to score. So it limited what I could do for, for them as well. So I'd say, yeah, always, always be a threat to put that ball in a basket. Nice. Um, Aaron, thank you for coming on. This was great. Um, any social links or where can people find the Haiti Basketball Foundation and yourself and get a peek behind the scenes of what you're doing? Yeah, I really hope uh, I didn't uh, talk too much, man, and, and you were able to pull some salient points out of what I said, and it's an honor to, to be on here. I love that you're sharing games, uh, the game, the stories behind the game and, you know, good luck with the brand and, and I wish you the best. And I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to highlight our work. Haiti basketball foundation is on Instagram as Haiti underscore hoops. We also have a Facebook for Haiti basketball foundation, the Haiti hoops.net website will launch this spring. So we're under construction. You can go to Haiti hoops.net now It'll take you to our donation portal and you're, you know, obviously we love anybody. Every, every bit of help goes uh, to where we need it. You know, it goes to Haiti basketball and it's, you know, no donation is too small. So we're very great, grateful for anybody who's been able to contribute to this point and anyone who will contribute down the line, but ideally uh, and soon enough, HaitiHoops.net will be a lot, more than just uh, where you can go and, and make a donation as well. So keep stay tuned for that one uh, online. But yeah, Haiti underscore hoops is our uh, social network that we're most active on at the moment. 